starting a new series today, looking at the book 1 Peter. Uh, but before we get into the book itself and, and step through the verses, we, we thought it would be a good idea to have a look at the author of that book, which is the Apostle Peter, because I think what we know about his life from, from the Gospels gives us a really interesting insight into what inspired him to write that letter in 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is a, an interesting letter. It's, it's one that's written to Christians undergoing persecution. They're, they're suffering and they're being instructed on how to respond to that situation in a Christ-like way. It's really like it's a, it's a call to live righteously in the face of hostility, really. And so in that sense, it's very countercultural. It was back then and it still is today. And we want to ask the question, I guess, what was it that transformed Peter into the person that could, could respond to those situations in that way? We've seen Jesus give Simon this prophecy about his name, something that he no doubt didn't comprehend at the time. We've seen Jesus ask Simon to cast his net for more fish, and Simon is sceptical. We see, see doubt in him. Jesus performs a miracle, and we see how Simon responds with fear and with shame. We see Jesus call Simon to follow him and how he reacts with that radical faith. We also see Jesus come to the disciples in the middle of the storm, and we see Peter be the first to recognize Jesus and to actually step out in faith. But then we also see him sink. It's been a mixed bag. So we see this picture of someone who is not perfect, someone who has a, a number of character flaws, you could say. But despite that, God still wants to know him and still wants to work through him. And the revelation or the big idea that I want you to take from this is that Jesus didn't call Peter or any of the disciples for that matter because of what they were bringing to the table. You know, and Peter, I think, is a great example of that because he didn't really have many things working in his favour. And when we think about who he was, this Galilean fisherman, uneducated, far from being one of the elites in society, he also certainly wasn't the most spiritually qualified for the task. He had no formal religious training. And we see him here as being sceptical, doubtful, losing focus. And yet he's still the one that Jesus chose. Right? He still goes on to become this great leader in the church. And he goes on to write 1 Peter, a book of encouragement to Christians that calls them to live righteously in the face of hostility. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say that human history was forever changed by Peter and the other disciples. Peter was one of those people that knew how to mess up. He knew how to get things wrong. And we can learn so much and be so encouraged by God's response, by the way Jesus dealt with Peter when he did mess up. Now, if I had to pick a leader of the church, the guy who just denied me probably wouldn't be the guy to do it. In a human sense, I don't know if I would pick Peter as the leader. Why? Who wants a leader that tends to mess up? Who wants a leader that goes in, well, with, often without apparently thinking too deeply? Let's have a look at Peter's CV from the scriptures. There's nine points. So I'll just read them to you. First one, Peter's name is mentioned more in the gospel than anyone except for Jesus. Second one, no one speaks in the gospel as often as Peter did other than Jesus. 
Third one, Jesus spoke to Peter more than to any other individual. Fourth one, Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. Fifth one, Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Sixth one, Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any of the other disciples. Seven, Peter denied Jesus more forcibly and publicly than any of the other disciples, as we just saw. Peter, and then eight, Jesus praised Peter more than any of the other disciples. Nine, Jesus addressed Peter as Satan alone among the disciples. Remember he said, get behind me, Satan. As we can see, Peter was out there. He was doing it. What he was, he was a leader that needed refinement. And what refinement did he need? He needed the pride to be broken and to be replaced by faith. He needed to be filled with the Spirit of God and given not the power of his own strength and confidence to do things, but the power of the Spirit. He needed to learn that in himself he could not do it. Paul said that his strength was in his weakness. And Peter, at this point, had to be broken. He was a strong character that needed a powerful lesson. He was strong but he was impetuous. His future lay not in his own strength, not in that. It lay in the gifts and talents he had been given, refined by the Holy Spirit. His future lay in what God was doing within his heart. Peter sets forth his authority from the start. He's an apostle, one set out by Jesus with authority from Jesus. He doesn't need to establish any more credentials than that. That's sufficient. He is writing to believers chosen by God and set apart by him. Peter refers to them as exiles, and they are this in two ways. They've been scattered throughout the world. The areas Peter mentions are five Roman provinces in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. These believers were not together in one place like many of the other recipients of other letters in the Bible. They were scattered about. The letter that Peter writes would have been carried around to each group and read out to them. They are also exiles because no matter what their background was, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Gentile, by accepting Christ as Lord, they have alienated themselves from the society they were used to. They no longer fitted with the culture and practices of their previous way of life. Because of this, they were suffering persecution, and Peter writes to teach, encourage, and strengthen them. He wants them to trust Christ, to realise that persecution is part of the Christian life and is only temporary. He encourages them to stand firm in their faith and to keep their eyes on Jesus and on the hope they have in him. He's not writing to give them an answer as to why God would let them suffer. Rather, he tells them that persecution is not unexpected. It is not a sign that everything has gone wrong, that faith isn't enough. Instead, he wants to show them how to live in the midst of this, how to stay faithful, how to stay focused on what is important. He urges them to remain steadfast in the face of persecution, to remember the privilege they have as God's chosen people 
and to live in a way that honours and glorifies God. This first part of Peter's letter emphasises the salvation that we have, that we are saved and set free by the sacrifice of Jesus, that he died and rose again and now reigns in glory. We have been born into a living hope. We've been born again into that living hope, into that inheritance that will not change, that will not be taken away from us because of the great mercy and grace of God. Because of this, we rejoice in God, even though we face trials. Even as our faith is tested, we rejoice in God. The message is, be holy. Because God's holy and we should imitate him. First thing we need to do, as you can see in that, is prepare your mind for action. Preparing your mind for action means to desire to make a choice. So what this passage is telling us is, be holy because I am holy, at which point my heart sinks a bit because I think I'm not going to make it. I'll give it a try, but I'm not going to get there. And then what do we hear next? That God is gracious, that God is permanent, God's word never changed, that God is there for us by his grace. So what are you? You are a sinner saved by grace. What do you need? You need what God has already provided. And you should be encouraged, I pray, that God has provided that grace. He has provided that salvation and it's there for you. Our job is to embrace it, is to gird up our loins, to say, yes, God, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work with your spirit to be holy. God, I'm going to make a conscious choice to choose the right and proper way forward. And I'm only going to do it by your grace. God, I'm going to be self-controlled and I need your spirit for that because that's where that comes from. God, I'm going to be not like I was in the past. I'm going to be like I want to be in the future because your son died for me and in his blood, I'm a new creation. God, above all else, I want my mind filled with your grace, not with my foolish thoughts. I want to not go around in circles thinking stupid stuff. I want to go around in circles thinking about the wonders and glory of what you've done. I want that to be what my mind is filled with. Last week he told us to be holy because God's holy and he told us to love one another. This week we continue into chapter 2 and he continues on very much the same theme. So the world gains a view of Christ from how they see you. So my challenge to you today is, when they look at you, what do they see? Do they see love and caring and giving and joy and peace? Or do they see grumpiness and anger and judgmentalism? And you should... If I ask them what the first words you're going to say... Uh, do they expect to say, you mustn't, you shouldn't? Are you, is that what they're going to say? Are they going to see Christians as negative people? I want to tell you today, they should see us so positive. 
They should see us as people who have hope, people who have joy, people who have an expectation, people who know they have a future, people who know how to enjoy themselves without making themselves sick the next day, people who know how to party and do it in the right way. That's what we should be, and that's how the world should see us. So I want to challenge you today to touch Jesus with your heart, to become a living stone more and more in that temple, and to be living the life that Jesus would have you live. And just leave you again. I'm going to challenge you again. If you were the only Christian people knew, how would they describe a Christian? 